All right. Well, like I said, we're going to finish the book of Ruth tonight. And um, so this week is, is session six. Um, and I'm just very thankful um, that y'all would let me share. I, I, I had fun with this last time. I had fun digging it out in my notes and, and kind of looking at it again. Um, I want to just do a quick review because we might still have maybe one or two people who are here for the first night. And um, uh, in the book of Ruth, we, we, uh, we covered these four chapters. We're going to finish up the very end in just a minute, but I wanted to kind of remind you just of the progression of Ruth uh, socially. Uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 2, she was a foreigner. Chapter 1, she was a, a wife and then a widow and then a daughter-in-law. But in chapter 2, she was a foreigner. And the Hebrew word there is Nakreya. And then she, well, in chapter 2, 13, she was a Shippa, which is just a little bit lower than the lowest servant in a household. So because she was a foreigner, she kind of was in a role that she was less than even the, the lowest servants in the household. And in chapter 3, she was an Ama. She approached Boaz and, said, and he said, who are you? And, and she said, well, I'm uh, Ruth your ama, your maidservant, and by chapter 4, she's a bride. She's Elisha. And so um, we see this progression in just four short chapters of a woman who was a foreigner, an outsider, an outlier. Um, one of the things that I have not touched on is uh, just the prophecy of Micah 2. You know, we have, um, uh, have talked about the idea that prophecy for us as Westerners tends to look like this. There's a promise and then some sort of fulfillment. And we know that uh, God is, our God is a, a God who promises things and keeps His promises always. Uh, he can't do anything but that. And, and actually, it's, it's easy for Him. I heard a quote the other day that God doesn't play dice. And the reason He doesn't play is it wouldn't be any fun because He'd win every time. Um, because He's outside of time and He sees everything and knows everything. Because of that, we are playing it out in time. And in Micah 5.2... There's this prophecy, it says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And we know who that is. His name is Jesus, Yeshua our Savior. Um, Bethlehem is, is identified as going to be famous because it's going to send out uh, the, this ruler, and the amazing thing is, is that Bethlehem, does anybody remember what we said, the, the, the term Bethlehem, what the, what the meaning of that is? House of bread. And so out of the house of bread came the bread of life, our Savior Jesus. And you're going to hear me say a lot of things like that today. Um, so we talk about the, the Greek model is a prediction and fulfillment. The Hebrew model is, does anybody remember that? Pattern. Remember, we talked about patterns. So the Hebrew model is a repetition of a pattern over and over and over again. We talked about the, the calendar and the dates and, and the months and the years and, and the different events that went on on the calendar. And, and I think early on I, I mentioned that the Jewish rabbis would say that a catechism for a young Jew is the calendar. It's the, the feasts and, and the festivals of the calendar. Um, we learned about Boaz as a type of the kinsman redeemer, and that word type just means that it was a foreshadow of the real thing. And, um, but I want you to think about this. This is a story. This is an event that really happened. It's a sweet story, 
But we're talking about real people who lived and were on the verge of death uh, in chapter 1 and then later um, uh, come to a place where they're, they're experiencing the, the incredible wealth of God. And Boaz serves as a, a role of the Goel, which is, we talked about the kinsman redeemer. And then the last couple weeks I mentioned um, the blood avenger, the other side of, of the Goel. And, you know, it's, it's amazing and uh, kind of unusual that Boaz would be willing to take a woman as his wife who was a Moabitess, probably, you know, decades younger than him, uh, because it was forbidden by the Torah for anyone to associate and, and have any contact with Moabites. And, um, in fact, in uh, Deuteronomy 23, there's several prohibitions against that. So Boaz's act of redemption uh, in that he takes a Gentile bride and then he redeems the land to Naomi. And this was uh, also illegal in the Torah. Boaz uh, is, is pictured as a type of Christ and it's an uh, anticipatory, anticipatory analog or a, a picture depicting uh, what is yet to come. And remember, we touched on um, Hosea chapter 12, 10 that said that God has spoken through his prophets through all different types of, of, of language and similitudes and parables and these are just designed to send a message in, in a way that, uh, that would be unique uh, and, and, uh, and different. So all different ways he did that. I don't know if you've ever studied the book of Ezekiel, but he uses Ezekiel as a type, and he has him do all kinds of crazy things. One, one year he walks around with no pants on, and that's, he's just a, a picture from God that this is how I view you, um, and I want you to repent. So our kinsman redeemer, Jesus, uh, is like Boaz, and in, in the, the uh, drama, he's not really free to move uh, toward Ruth um, because she was a widow, and she was likely wearing her widow garments as she was uh, gleaning. But um, uh, in the same way, Christ went to the cross. He initiated the possibility of salvation for us, but he waited for our response to that. Um, in fact, uh, Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. But it requires somebody to open the door. And I've, I've used that in sharing the gospel with people because in that passage, Jesus says, I will come into him. I don't know anybody who comes to a door and knocks and they open the door and they come into him. Um, so we, we represent this door as a door to a person's heart. And, uh, and I've heard people say, well, you can't say this is an evangelistic war, uh, passage because it's talking about Jesus is talking to the church at Laodicea. And I said, but where is he? He's outside. He's not in the church. He wants to come in, but he's waiting for somebody to invite him in. So he's not going to crash the door down. It's our move on the inside to open up the door. Um, and just a few things, um, and we'll cover this at the end real quick. Um, in order to bring Ruth to Naomi, Naomi had to be exiled from her land. She had to be away from Israel because Ruth was over in Moab. And so Naomi's arrival in Moab is what made it possible for Ruth to come back to the promised land. Um, I've said this a couple different times, what the law could not do, grace accomplished. 
And hallelujah, we get to be a part of that. Um, in the drama, Ruth doesn't replace Naomi. Um, Ruth also learns of, of Boaz's uh, uh, role through Naomi. Uh, Ruth is clueless about that. She doesn't have any idea about kinsman redeemer or anything like that. She's just going out to get food to survive. Uh, and interesting thing about this is it's true that Naomi knew of him because she identifies him as a near kinsman, but it's, there's no evidence that she ever had met him before uh, this time. And so she knows of him, but she doesn't know him personally. And I, I find this interesting. And uh, then another comment, uh, no matter how much Boaz was attracted to Ruth and loved her and, and maybe wanted to take her as a bride, he had to wait her move. He had to wait for her to initiate that. And, and it was Boaz, not Ruth, that ultimately intercedes and goes in the place to uh, present this, this possibility to the nearer kinsman. Remember there in chapter 4, there's someone that's identified as a near kinsman, someone that's closer to Naomi than, than even Boaz is. But Ruth didn't go make that appeal to him. Boaz went and made that appeal. And you know, Jesus is, ever lives to make our intercession to the Father. Um, so all of these little, little quips are parallels and types of, uh, that depict uh, in a pattern our Savior Jesus. Um, so um, in Revelation 5, we talked about the concept of the redemption of the land. We talked about a scroll that had to be written and tucked away. And I mentioned about how uh, Jeremiah was directed by God to buy a piece of land. And uh, this was right before they were going to be exiled, which is really a, a crazy, dumb uh, business proposition. But he was directed by God to do it. And it was confirmed through his nephew. And he bought this land and wrote a deed to it. Uh, explaining the parameters of the land and then sealed it and then wrote on the outside what would be necessary to redeem that land. And that's what we have depicted in the book of Revelation in chapter 5 is, um, you know, there was a book, a scroll that's brought out and no one is found worthy to open it up. And, and John weeps convulsively. He can't, he can't bear the thought that no one can open up this scroll. And then the elder who's directing him has him turn around and he sees a lamb that's from the, lion, from the tribe of the lion Judah and, and he's slain. He's wearing the scars of having been slain and he is found worthy to open up the scroll and, and that scroll is the title deed to this earth. And so we have this uh, explanation that uh, is foreshadowed in the book of Ruth and helps us understand what's going on. I think the... the, uh, the um, drama with, with uh, Jeremiah in prison buying this land before he goes into captivity also kind of helps us understand all this. So uh, it was sealed in Revelation 5. It was sealed with seven seals, and that was required uh, by, by law for wills and deeds, and uh, we believe that's what that was. Okay, we talked about the Goel, the blood avenger, and we talked about the Leverite marriage and the blood avenger, how those two things fit, and the, the blood avenger and all that goes along with that is a, is a type of Christ. Uh, there was a death, maybe accidental, maybe murder. Uh, the, the person who killed the other, would uh, the manslayer, would flee to a city of refuge. There were six of them scattered all throughout Israel. Uh, the, the Levites, in, when the land was distributed, they didn't get any property per se, but they were 
designated to go to cities because they were going to minister to the people in those areas. And six of these cities were designated as cities of refuge. And so the manslayer could flee to one of these, appeal to the, the leaders, the elders in the gate, as they held court in the gate, and, and say, I'm innocent, and they would protect him and send somebody to go explore and find out what happened and then come back and give a report. And if it was first-degree murder, then they would bring this, drag this guy out and they would stone him. Because remember, there was no jails and there was no police force. They just, the community all worked together. If he was innocent, he could stay in the city and be protected by the city officials and by the city walls. If he ever left, the blood, uh, blood avenger could take his life and, and would be required to. He could stay in that city and he, and he could be released on one condition, that the, the high priest in Jerusalem passed away, that he died. And we have Jesus as our city of refuge. And the city of refuge is a type of Jesus. And then we have um, Jesus as the one who is the high priest for us, who, who died. So we could be released from the city of refuge. And we are guilty of murder. From God's perspective, murder is what put Jesus on the cross. Or, or our, our sin put Jesus on the cross to be murdered. But on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So it moved it from first-degree murder into second-degree murder, manslaughter, and made it possible for us to leave. So that's an interesting thing. Now, in Numbers 35, um, verses 9 through 28, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourself cities to be cities of refuge. And so that passage talks all about that, and it's given instructions about the, um, the, uh, how they're to deal with the um, blood avenger when he comes to avenge the blood of the deceased, and then what they're to do to, to make sure that the manslayer is handled correctly and, and uh, not just uh, killed unjustly. All right. Um, Ruth chapter 4, verses 10 through 15. Now, we kind of stopped here last week, and I wanted to start earlier on it tonight so that we can finish this. So in Ruth chapter 4, verses 10 through 15, um, it says, uh, Moreover, I've acquired Ruth the Moabitess, this is Boab speaking, the widow of Machlon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from, this, from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. So the men who are at the city gate, he calls them to be witnesses to this event. The, the near kinsman has turned him down. He's turned over his sandal. The sandal is a rejection and a pass on the, resp the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. And now Boaz has that sandal as a, as a ticket to marriage and a ticket to this land. Uh, verse 10, he jumps right to that. Moreover, I've acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Machlon, to be my wife in order to raise up a name uh, for the deceased. Uh, verse 11, all the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses, and may the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom the house of, house of Israel, uh, built of the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah, and become famous in Bethlehem. And that's the phrase that's used in Micah 5. Um, verse 12, and this is where it gets kind of off track. 
Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, I think they were thinking about the, the Leverite marriage, but if you remember when we went through Genesis 38, the Leverite marriage went, went off tracks. Uh, Judah had three sons. The oldest son took a wife. He did evil in God's sight, and God took him. And so the second son, Onan, was asked to step up and serve as her husband, provide seed for a child, and that child would be ahead of him in the order of inheritance of the land. And he didn't want that. And so he spilled his seed on the ground, and God killed him because of that disobedience. Judah had a third son, Shelah. And he tells his daughter-in-law, Tamar, you go back to your parents because he's not old enough yet. And he had no intention of ever giving this younger son as a, as a husband to her. And so she goes back to her hometown, Timnah, and some years later, when Sheila's old enough, uh, Judah takes his, his posse and all their sheep up to be sheared in Timnah, and he kind of takes after the, the model of what happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas. He went up there, and Tamar, dressed up as a prostitute, takes off her mourning clothes because Sheila would have been, it would have been time for him to step up. And so she comes out and acts like a, a prostitute he conceives a child with her, and he gives as a, a down payment for that service a staff, a belt, and a signet ring. And then later, comes back, she's not there. Three months later, uh, he gets word that she's pregnant. Your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. And he's, he's stinking mad. And he's going, come on, let's go burn her at the stake. So they show up and she sends out the, the staff and the belt and the ring and says, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. Thankfully, Judah owned it. He didn't, he didn't deny it. And he says, she's more righteous than I. And the scripture says he took her in, she bore the sons, and then he never had relations with her again. But here, this... This first part of the toast of this, of this future wedding, you know, let, let the woman you're bringing into your home be like Rachel and Leah, who God used to build his, his, his uh, family, his kingdom. You know, Israel went in as a family to Egypt and they came out as a nation. And then they, they throw in this last part, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tabar bore. Wait a minute, he's a He's an illegitimate child. And if I can borrow the King James Version, he was a bastard child. And oh, by the way, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3 tells us that no illegitimate child will ever be allowed into the assembly uh, for worship. To the tenth generation. So Perez and the next ten in, in the line were not allowed to be part of the, of the worship of God, at least not corporately. And I want you to keep that in, in the back of your mind. We'll come back to it in a minute. But anyway, so Deuteronomy 23 tells us about that. It says, um, well, if this is going to cooperate here, sometimes it does. There we go. No illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And, you know, so this, that makes this kind of a very odd and strange prophecy because 
that's not really a, a good thing. That'd be like if you had somebody at your, um, at your uh, family reunion and this person was a bank robber and, and then you bring a brand new baby and they say, well, we hope you're like your Uncle Billy the bank robber. Um, so this was not a good thing, but it does point us back to that story. And we're going to come back to that in a minute for some cookies. All right, so um, I want to bring something out here. Here are the ten generations of, of Perez. We have in Ruth chapter 4, 16 through 22. We can pick up there. It says, Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and she became his nurse. And, you know, that's kind of a confusing word for us because we, it's not very common, but we do have sometimes people serve as a wet nurse. That's not what this word is. This is more like a, a guardian or somebody who would watch over him closely like a nanny. And, um, and then it says, verse 17, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And now these are the generations of Perez. Perez was born to Hezron. Hezron was born to Ram. And to Ram, Aminadab. And to Aminadab was born Nashon. And to Nashon, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz. And Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. And oh, by the way, the next book in the chronology of the Bible is 1 Samuel. And David is not introduced until midway through 1 Samuel. So this too is, is also prophetic. Um, we've already mentioned about Hosea 12.10 that God says, I spoke into the prophets, I gave numerous visions, and through the prophets I gave parables. King James uses the word similitudes. And this means likeness, likenesses or representations or copies or replica or a simulation. Uh, another synonym, resemblance. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago that there are over 200 literary styles that can be found in the Bible. And some of them are real obvious, like exaggeration or... Um, uh, I can't even think of some of them. But um, anyway, uh, types are one of these ways that God communicates. And I think ultimately, God is saying to us, listen, I've tried to exhaust every possible way I can get my message through to you. Um, so please pay attention to something. Um, and so uh, we believe in the Bible as the Word of God. We also believe um, because Jesus said in John 5.39, you search the Scriptures because in these you find, you think that you have eternal life, but these are what speak of me. These are what testify about me. Psalm 40, going backwards into the Psalms, say, Behold, I come, and in the scroll of the book it is written of me. So I've mentioned a couple different times that there are these patterns in the Bible, but if we want to simplify it, we can say they all, in some form or manner, point to Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing. I remember hearing the story about uh, a Sunday school class. Uh, I can use that word, right? Uh, uh, old school life group uh, that uh, was fifth grade boys, and they were pretty rowdy. And they brought a guy in, and he got worn out, and they ran him off. And they brought somebody else in to lead this group, and they ran him off. So they brought, they brought some other sucker in there, and he's in there. He's trying to build a relationship with these boys, and so he's trying to tell a joke to just kind of break the ice. And so he says, 
what's brown and has a fuzzy tail and climbs trees and eats nuts? Nobody said a word. He said, come on, guys, what's brown and has a fuzzy tail and climbs trees and eats nuts? And in the back of the room, this little boy raised his hand, and he said, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. Um, I think we can, we can do that. We can look for Jesus on every page. We can look through Jesus or look to Jesus, look for Jesus in everything. If you study the tabernacle, Jesus says seven I am's that all relate to something that has to do with the tabernacle. I'm the bread of life, has to do with the showbread. I'm the light of the world, has to do with the menorah, uh, the candlestick. Um, uh, I'm the door, had to do with the veil that separated the outer court from the Holy of Holies, or the inner court from the Holy of Holies. Um, uh, he was the sacrifice. So everything, even about the tabernacle, pointed to Jesus, um, or some, some facet about something that he accomplished. Okay, now, I think I'm going to have time here. Okay, I've been promising some cookies, and I don't have any to eat. I love cookies. But I've been hanging this out there and kind of stringing along. And so tonight I'm going to try to explain what I mean by this term. Uh, and, and, and then I want to start by sharing a personal journey. Um, you know, I have come to believe that the author of the book that we have in our hand, that we hold in our lap, is God the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit was the author. And in the New Testament, Peter tells us that there's no, no scripture as in any interpretation of, of mere man, but instead it was the Holy Spirit that moved men to write the words of God. And so we have the words of God in our lap. Uh, uh, there's a lot of questions about how do we get this and why are different Bibles, why do they read a little bit different? And I don't want to try to answer that question tonight, but what I want you to do is I want you to have confidence that God is the author of this book. And prophecy is one of the ways that he proves his authorship. And so part of the personal story is that um, uh, probably about five years ago, my wife and I, I think I've mentioned this, we'll, we'll drive. She reads and keeps her nose in a book and off traffic. And I pay attention to the road and I can hear. And we get two birds done with one thing. And, um, and she was reading this book. And in the book, she came across a story and, um, and I want to tell you about this story. It's, uh, and actually, I'm going to read a paragraph out of the book. It says, uh, this paragraph says, Upon this basis, I'm going to show you how a bunch of bright young folks did find a champion, a man with boys and girls of his own, a man of so dominating and happy individuality that youth was drawn to him as a fly to a sugar bowl. It's a story about a small town. It's not a gossipy yarn nor is it a dry, monotonous account full of such customary fill-ins as ro romantic moonlight casting murky shadows down a long, winding country road. Nor will it say anything about twinklings, lulling distant folds, robins caroling at twilight, nor any warm glow of lamplight from a cabin window. No, it's an account of up-and-going activity, a vivid portrayal of youth as it is today, a practical discarding of that worn-out notion that a child doesn't know anything. Now, as she was reading this, I was like, okay, so what? 
Now, if you had this in front of you and you read it, you probably wouldn't necessarily notice anything. But this is a whole paragraph, uh, eight sentences that does not, you can't find one word in it that has the letter E in it. I'm not talking about let, words that start with the letter E. There's no letter E in any of these words. And so all the words were selected and crafted and pieced together by the author to intentionally exclude the letter E. And this was uh, something that the, the, the author did deliberately. So if you pulled this book off the shelf, it's a 260-page book. And the title of the book is um, Gadsby, G-A-D-S-B-Y. And the subtitle of the book is A Story of Over 50,000 Words Without Using the Letter E. Published in 1939 by Ernest Vincent Wright. Now, if you pulled this book out and you started reading it, first of all, it's not going to read very easily, just like the paragraph that I read, because he had to wear out his thesaurus to find words to replace words that had the letter E in them. So he had to um, exclude every word that had the letter E. So think about it. He could never use pronouns he, she, they, we, me, them. There, he limited his use of common verbs. He couldn't use the word are or have or we or were or be or been. He also restricted the use of the words that we use often such as there, these, those, when, then, more, after, and very. And he went so far as to block, he probably had one of those old-timey typewriters, 1939, and he blocked the letter E from ever coming up so he wouldn't accidentally type it in there. So I, I'm bringing this up because if you found this book and you started reading it, first you probably wouldn't want to finish it. Um, the author didn't want to finish it. The author didn't want to finish it. He got several years into it and somebody had to talk him into finishing it. Look, you've gone this far. You've made some progress. Go ahead and finish it. And so he finally did. But if you read it, it would not be very fulfilling, not very exciting. And you wouldn't know where, where the end was because he couldn't put the end at, at the beginning. So um, I guess we ran out of pages. But anyway, if you picked this book up and you read it and you happened to notice that none of the words had the letter E, would you come to the conclusion that this happened by happen chance, by accident, or would you come to the conclusion that it was intentional? Intentional, okay. All right, so the, the author finished the book, he left out the letter E, and I'm using this as an example because as my wife was reading this book, I'm like, okay, okay, so what, so what, so what? And then the Holy Spirit convicted me and said, Jamie, you've limited me. You think I'm limited only to the words that you can read. And I've got something far more for you than that. So, I want to introduce to you a cookie, the concept of cryptology. Now, before you think I'm completely crazy, in, I don't know if I ever heard Dr. Rogers preach about it, but I heard him talk about numerology and cryptology in lunches with the, with the rest of the staff. And he didn't go really into deep into it, but he did find it intriguing. So if you would just go with me for a little bit and just humor me for a little bit, um, this is one of the ways, the science of cryptology is one of the ways that we are able to translate artifacts that we find that are in different languages. 
And because languages, all languages have a, uh, some common things, and, and one of the common things is, is that there's repetition of certain characters, and once you can find, uh, decode what that character is, then you can start to unlock the code. And you know, uh, in World War II, there were, this was a huge thing. Um, there was uh, a, a Jewish man who helped decode the Germans' master code, and before that code, the, the, um, the Allies lost every war. They lost every battle. After he decoded that from that point on, we knew every move that the Germans were going to make and the war turned because he was able to decipher this code. And so um, the science of cryptology depends heavily on the statistical behavior of, of every language. And so, for an example, in English, the expected frequency of the letter E is around 13%. In other words, 13% of our English language has the letter E in it. Okay, now that may not seem like a lot, but when you try to exclude it, I encourage you to write a paragraph and, and exclude the letter E. In fact, um, uh, uh, Samuel Morris, who developed Morse code, he, he understood this, and he made, because of the frequency of the letter E, he made the letter E a single dot. And letters that were less frequently used, he used a, a, a broader combination of that. But um, when the Holy Spirit convicted me, you've underestimated me, uh, you don't really think that I could do this? Tears came to my eyes. I confessed. I opened my heart, and he began to thrill me with some things that I've discovered. So I want to show you. In Genesis 38... Here is a picture, well actually this is a picture of Genesis 38, and, um, and Hebrew reads from right to left across the page, so opposite of English, and um, I want you to, you know, I don't want to spend a lot of time on here, but this is chapter 38. This is the chapter about Judah and his three sons and Tamar and, and these children that are born at the end. And we've already been through the story, so I'm not going to go over that. But what I want you to see is in chapter 38, um, uh, the concept uh, was developed by uh, Rabbi Moshe Cordero, Cordero, Cordovero, sorry, Cordovero um, in his classical work on Jewish mysticism, uh, Parodies Ramonium, uh, and it's subtitled The Secrets of the Holy Torah Revealed Through Knowledge of Combinations, Numerology, Switching Letters, first and last letters, shapes of letters, first and last verses, skipping of letters, and letter combinations. So all these different styles of approaching cryptology were employed by this guy. I'm just going to be talking about one, and it's called uh, uh, ELS, Equal Letter Distance Sequencing. And what that is, is in the Hebrew, what they would do is they would just randomly pick a number, and they would skip letters according to that number. So if they picked the number 10, then they would go 10 letters from this letter and 10 letters from this letter and 10 letters from this letter and pull it out. How many of you all seen the movie uh, A Christmas Story? And old Ralphie, he wants a Red Ryder BB gun and they said, you'll shoot your eye out. Well, he doesn't get that, or actually he does get it and he shoots his eye out, but um, <laughs> before that, before Christmas comes, he gets his Ovaltine decoder ring. And he puts that thing on, gets a pad of paper, goes over to the radio, and he's listening, and they're calling out numbers. 
and he's writing the numbers down. He's using that ring to decode it. And does anybody remember what the code was? Drink more Ovaltine. <laughs> and he was distressed. But the code was numbers. And if you didn't have the decoder, he wouldn't know what he, all he had was numbers to go by. And so this guy in the 16th century, he had a lot of time on his hands. And he found out that there were some things that were hidden in the text just by distancing letters and pulling them out and finding them out. So um, if you think about um, this in Genesis chapter 38, um, if we select the numbers singled out for every 49th letter, which is seven squared, and I think seven is a pretty significant number in the Bible, in the Hebrew we find several names. The first name that we find is Boaz. Okay, now remember, when was Genesis 38 written? Who wrote Genesis? Moses. Moses wrote Genesis. So on Mount Sinai, God downloaded this to, to, to Moses. He would have no idea who Boaz was. He was writing about this story. Okay? And so Boaz's name is there. We go on just a little bit farther, and every 49th letter, the name Ruth comes out. Okay, now, maybe that's a coincidence. But I think in here I've tried to teach you that from a rabbi's perspective, coincidence is not a kosher word. Okay? This could happen randomly. Um, there's some other places in the Bible where a name appears randomly, but uh, to me it's kind of interesting that the chapter that speaks about Perez and the book that mentions Perez has the names of the characters in that book encoded in this, and that's not all. We go a little bit farther in the text, and guess what? We find a name, Obed. Remember him? The son of Ruth and Boaz. And then... We go a little bit farther, and we find two more names, same chapter, and this is not cooperating as much. We find the name Yishe, which is where we get our name Jesse, and another name, David. Five names encoded in the Hebrew from right to left, in, encoded every 49th letter in chronological order, decades, centuries before they were, were ever born. Okay, now, what does that mean? Well, that was what I kind of had to work through. Okay, Lord, what are you trying to tell me through this? And I think, you know, at the most, um, which first of all, let me say that the, the equal letter distance sequencing is probably one of the easiest codes. Some of the other ones are very complex. But... Um, you know, if, if we just, well, let me say this. Most people kind of pick one or, or the other. They, they either dismiss it completely, say it's just, it's just coincidence, uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, perv it's uh, not clear enough, uh, I, I'm not going to accept it. Other people find it too curious, too provocative, too interesting to just entirely dismiss. So... If I can say this, I, I, I would say 
I look at this as kind of a wink from God saying to us, don't underestimate me. This is my word. And I've got some special things for you if you'll stick with it. Okay, I confessed to you earlier about seven years ago, even as one of your staff members, I read the Bible devotionally regularly. I followed a reading plan and I checked the box. And I would come across passages that I loved. I might linger a little bit longer. I, I oftentimes would pray the Bible back to God. But then there were many times I came across things that I didn't understand and just kind of took it as move on, nothing to see here. And then when Cindy and I read this, I realized, God, you've got something far more than me, and I've underestimated you, and please forgive me and, and help me to have eyes to see and a willingness to, to learn. So in this, again, we have in 49 Leonard intervals, all in chronological orders, hundreds of years before they were ever born, these five names encoded in the text of Genesis 38, Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and David. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens. So the connection with the house of Perez, and again, this was dictated by God to Moses, and, uh, and the time frame of this is about 50 days after the Exodus. So Moses is up on the mountain. He's been up there for 40 days, and... Um, and it was given to Moses letter by letter. So if these codes are valid, at the very least, they represent that the source of this information is outside of time. This book is a supernatural book. This book is from supernatural origin. This book has a special message. And not just to the Jew, but also to us. Um, you know, if we, we can see God interacting in prophecy as we look at it for, as Westerners as here's a, here's a promise and then later he fulfills it. But if we see the patterns and then we recognize the patterns are not just only in the 24-hour cycles of a day, the seven-day cycles of a week, the 30 or 29 and a half days cycles in a month, the 365-day circles, uh, what word was I using? I've kind of got lost. Yeah, the cycles, cycles, circles, cycles uh, in a year. And then these festivals that God is trying to send messages to us that he wants us to understand. And all of it points to our Savior. All of it points to Jesus. And so, you know, in looking at this, um, you know, I was kind of reminded years ago that um, we came across this thing, um, I don't know if you all remember, backward masking on rock and roll songs. And, uh, you know, I didn't know that much about it, but I was listening to some tapes of some guys talking about it, and man, these guys that didn't know Christ were just locked in. They wanted to hear about this. And that gave me a platform to talk to them about what it was really all about, Jesus. Some of those people came to understand the gospel, and some of them were saved. And so this is something that maybe a little bit like apologetics, hopefully you'll walk away from here thinking our God is a great God. Our God's an awesome God. 
And this plan that he's working out, hallelujah, we get to be a part of it. But also, you would think with great confidence, you know what, when I talk with people, I'm sharing the greatest message you ever told about the greatest man who ever lived and the greatest sacrifice that was ever made to impact the greatest number of people in the history of the world, the gospel, and have them saved. And what the law could not do, it couldn't save us. Grace did through Jesus. So I want to, um, I really, we got a little bit of time. Let me touch on one more. You might like this one. Um, This is in the book of Isaiah. Why don't you go ahead and turn to the book of Isaiah. We're done with Ruth. Um, and I'll try to leave a few minutes if you have any questions about Ruth. But go ahead and turn to the book of Isaiah. And we're going to read Isaiah chapter 53. Brother Steve's preaching out of Isaiah. And this is one that, um, that and I'll be reading out of uh, the New American Standard. And um, actually, I'm going to start in chapter 52 because I think it probably was uh, maybe a little bit better running start. So... Um, Isaiah 52 and verse 13. And if you're confused, chapter 52 is right before chapter 53. So, all right. Chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told to them, they will see. And what had not been heard, they will understand. And then chapter 53. Who's believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and his by his scourging, we are healed. Words in, words in Just like sheep have gone astray, each have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death. And because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, He will see it and be satisfied in his knowledge of the righteous one, by his knowledge of the righteous one. My servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, 
and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now, this was written by the prophet Isaiah, but because it so clearly depicts what Jesus went through and why he went through it, there was a group of Jewish rabbis that tore this out of the, out of the book. They took it out of the scroll because it pointed toward Jesus. So some years after Jesus had, had risen and ascended, Christians were pointing to this and leading Jews to the Lord. And so these rabbis took charge of that. Well, we, we can't have this. So they took this out of, out of the scroll of Isaiah. This is one of the reasons why the Dead Sea Scrolls and that discovery was so important because one of the things that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was the complete scroll of Isaiah, including Isaiah 53. So all of a sudden they had to kind of raise their hands and say, oops, oops. <laughs> and that same scroll is now unrolled with a lamp behind it so that you can actually see it and read it in, in the Hebrew Museum in Jerusalem. And Isaiah 53 is right there. But there's a rabbi who employed some of these techniques and it's a little bit broader than that. He went forward, backwards. He, you know, skipped wider range of numbers. And, and this was all done by hand originally. You know, now we have computers that can do this for us. And so it's, it's very different. But here, here are the things, over 40 names, places, and events that are encoded in Isaiah chapter 53. Okay, the first one is... Um, uh, well, actually, let me try to do it. In Isaiah 53, 2, the name Thomas is found. In Isaiah 53, 2, uh, the disciples mourn, that little statement. And, uh, and I'm not, I, I can't do all, this, uh, all the scriptures in time, but here are, the name, uh, here are the things. Wine, bread, Joseph, Salome, three Marys. You remember there were three Marys at the cross when Jesus died. Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother, and uh, Mary, um, sister of, of, of Lazarus. And then we have um, uh, Matthias. We have Thaddeus, Simeon, two Jameses. You know, there are two Jameses in the apostles. Philip, Andrew, John, Matthew, Peter. I mentioned already the disciples mourn. The atonement lamb, pierce, cross. Moriah, let him be crucified, the evil Roman city, the man Herod, Passover, Ananias, Caiaphas, Levites, Pharisee, Shiloh, Galilee, Nazarene, Messiah, his signature, and then right in the middle of it in verse 10, Yeshua is my name, Jesus is my name. Okay, now if you understand me right, and you're kind of on the border, that ought to cause your, you to have your, skin, your skin to chill a little bit. That our God would encode this in there as a testimony of a future event that we call our day of salvation, the day that Jesus died and rose again, and all the people that were involved and all the events leading up to it. And so uh, 
question is, is um, again, to the skeptics, is this just, you know, they would look at this as just accidental, just a chance occurrence. Uh, but because of just the, the vast number of things in this one chapter, I think it's really hard to land on that position. Um, where these codes appear, again, people kind of fall into skepticism or they embrace it. Now, one of the warnings that I want to give you, Martha's not here tonight. Uh, Martha's the one that kind of corrected me about the current use of, of uh, unleavened bread and leavened bread. And she was married to a Jewish rabbi for 11 years before she married Champ. And she, um, as we were talking about the, these types of things, um, she said that, um, that uh, you know, there are people that she knows that really believe these, these and that there are others that don't at all. They just dismiss it. They're not willing to even to consider that. Um, but what I want to say is that uh, as she was talking about it, that in the Messianic Jewish communities right now, the trouble that they're having in those communities is Gentiles who come in and learn of these Jewish traditions and ways, and they want to take it farther. She said one night her husband fielded a question from somebody in their congregation that wanted to know what were the credentials, what were the qualifications for a bull to be slaughtered for sacrifice. Well, the whole book of Hebrews is a warning about do not go back to that. So the caution for us in this is to not get so caught up in it that we lose sight of what the message is. I think this reinforces and supports and excites me, but I want to know God and worship Him in spirit and in truth, not in codes and you know digging deeper and finding other things. That, that's exciting and that's fun, but He's made it real simple for us. He's put it on the, on the, the cookies on the bottom shelf for all of us. And so I share that with you just to say, I think sometimes God will get our attention and give us a wink and a smile and say, come on, I've got a whole lot more for you. How deep do you want to go? And I'd love you to go with me. And so are these codes real? Some people just dismiss them altogether. I lean on the side of, I believe that they, they're real. I just can't get away from the fact that, that there's something there. And uh, again, the ELS codes, there's a lot of books that are out there on them. Um, the, uh, the one that talks about these, all these names is by a, uh, a rabbi, uh, Yaakov Ram, Ramzel, R-A-M-B-S-E-L. And um, it was, the title of the book is Jesus is My Name. So um, I hope it was worth hanging around to have a little cookie here at the end. <laughs> um, listen, I really had fun. I had fun restudying this, digging it up again, reminding of it. I'd forgotten some things. And so thank you for uh, joining in with me and letting me share. And, and uh, I hope it was beneficial to you as well. Uh, do anybody have any questions? Not that I know the answer, but I'll, I know answers. Anybody have any question at all? Yes, yes, good. I love it. Ben, Isaiah, did you become an all that bad? 
Yes. How, how are those letters? <coughs> okay. That's, yeah, that, okay. That, I didn't get into that. Um, Jesus is my name is actually encoded, as we would read it, left to right, every 20 letters. 20 letters. Every 20 letters, yes. Uh, Nazarene is every, uh, every uh, 47 letters right to left. Um, Messiah is every 42 letters left to right. So that's why I say in, the, in, yeah, in, in Genesis 38, they're all uh, right to left, according to Hebrew, every 49 letters. But in, in this, you know, they had time as rabbis. They were just kind of sitting in a monastery, and they had time to play around with this, and they were <laughs> studying. You know, one of the codes is the, is the, um, is the, uh, the shape of the letters. You know, uh, God is the Alpha and the Omega. Um, you know, the I, I'm trying to just remember some off the top of my head. You know, the some of the Hebrew names, um, the Hebrew for, name for man is um, is a circle or the 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 uh, character for it with a, a little U hanging on top of it, and it looks like an ox head. And so for man, it's, you know, kind of attached to, that he's to be the head of the, of the family. And so there are just different things like that in the, in the shapes of the letters, which, you know, we, we don't really, you know, get into that too much um, in English. We just kind of learn the sounds and throw them together for words um, so we can sight read. But um, of those that I mentioned, um, just some of them, uh, uh, one of the James is every... 34 letters forward, and one of them is every 20 letters from left to right. Um, uh, let me see. But Jesus is my name is every, every 20 letters from left to right. So. All right, any other questions? Okay, so... So leaving out of here, I'm saying, you search the scriptures. For in these you think you find eternal life, but in these they speak of me. So let's worship Jesus. Let's love him more. Everything we find, start looking for him. You're going to find him in places you've never thought or have never seen before. And also, as you're studying God's word, if you come across something you don't know, write down the question. In fact, I've, I've kind of learned a practice here uh, in the last few years that's challenged me, write that question down and ask God's Spirit to reveal that truth to you. And there have been a few times where somewhere down the road, down the road something occurred to me and I went and found another passage and all of a sudden that made sense because I was able to string the pearls together. So um, let the author of the book reveal Jesus. Let the author of the book reveal secrets and curiosities that we don't understand because we're very far removed from the culture and the time frame that, that most of it was written. So, all right, I finished on time tonight. So, hey, Jenny. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you all.
Praise God. I will. I'll read this. I'll treasure it. That's all right. Okay. Well, let's stand and we'll be dismissed. And Lord willing, I'm going to try to teach something next spring. And so, love to have you back. I don't know what it'll be. I'm waiting for him to tell me. <laughs> Father, thank you. Thank you for. Uh, thank you for bending down to us. Thank you for making this this walk with you so exciting and thrilling and and marvelous lord you every turn you've got something for us that is new and your mercies are new every morning but lord your your word brings those mercies to us and so thank you for that thank you for being alive thank you for speaking into our lives thank you lord for being our life and and then our breath and our thought Thank you for bringing us together and and letting us enjoy your word. And Lord, as we go out, I pray we'd be more passionate about telling other people about uh, the Messiah that has come and died and rose again and loves them and wants to be in a relationship with them. Lord, help us to be faithful. And just again, thank you for having these, these little blocks of time studying Boaz and Ruth and Naomi and all the significance behind it in the types that you've revealed yourself to us in. We love you, Lord Jesus. You're worthy of our praise. So we praise and bless the name of Jesus. We pray it in that name.